This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by the Council on Criminal Justice, a nonpartisan think tank and invitational membership organization that builds consensus for solutions that enhance safety and justice for all. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Tom Jackman, a criminal justice reporter at The Post. And this is the first time I've worn a necktie in years. <laughs> These two. Here are two people who have to wear a necktie every day, uh, and you have my sympathies. Uh, I am joined today by Minnesota's Attorney General Keith Ellison and Baltimore Police Commissioner Michael Harrison. Welcome to the Washington Post. Uh, And we'd like you, the viewer, to participate as well. If you've got a question for one of our panelists, tweet us at at @postlive. If you're here and you have a question, tweet us at at @postlive. You can't just stand up and start talking. Uh, The Supreme Court decision on gun ownership last week raised concerns over states being able to manage policies that reduce violent crime. Then Congress passed legislation, which the president signed, imposing some gun control measures, though many would say they're small steps. So we'll start with you, Mr. Attorney General, and first with the Supreme Court decision, uh, which invalidated a New York law that was over 100 years old uh, on carrying a gun in public. How will that affect public safety in Minnesota and nationwide? Yeah, the Supreme Court has just made our city less safe. Uh, It's an outrageous decision, in my opinion, not well-rooted in precedent at all. In fact, the the, the Second Amendment says a well-regulated militia being necessary to secure the state. What part of the Second Amendment is that in? Well, you know, (laughs) they they only go... it's the first part. (laughs) There you go. The very first part. So it's really kind of amazing that the word regulation doesn't seem to have any place. In fact, it's even worse than the Heller decision, which is the one that said that a person can have a gun in their home. That one we could live with. But this one goes further. It's, I mean, it's outside the home. And, and, and our biggest problem, in my opinion, is the excess in, uh, accessibility and the proliferation of guns uh, to people who um, would, you know, which otherwise would settle it with a, with a fist fight or maybe a shouting match accelerates into a deadly outcome. I'm deeply disappointed. Um, and again, you know, I'll, I will admit the Supreme Court has had me reeling over the last few days, but uh, this one is one of those that's particularly dangerous for our town. Commissioner, in Maryland, you have a law almost identical to the one in New York that just got struck down. If this, your law goes away, what happens to public safety in Baltimore? Well, I think it, it, I agree with it, uh, Attorney General Ellison. It makes us less safe and more dangerous because there is an intersection there with Second Amendment and Fourth Amendment because there will come a point if it is struck down in Maryland that right now when we observe a person carrying an illegal gun or illegally carrying a gun rather, we have the authority to stop and investigate, seize that gun, make that arrest because it is unlawful to carry a concealed weapon outside of a home in in Maryland, specifically in Baltimore. Well, if this is struck down in Maryland, then we will not have the legal authority to even make the approach when we see somebody illegally carrying a gun because it will no longer be illegal. Therefore, we won't be able to distinguish the law-abiding citizen from the would-be criminal or criminal offender who is illegally carrying a firearm, which, by the way, is the precursor to all shooting events. Well, I was going to say, theoretically, when you're stopping somebody from illegally carrying a gun, that stops the crime that happens further down the road. Absolutely, and I say this all the time, the decision to pull the trigger is not made when the trigger is pulled. 
The decision to pull the trigger is made when a person knowingly puts their hand on their gun and walks out of the door. The decision is already made. Right, if, so, if, if I may, so the chief has pointed out the intersection of the, force, of the Fourth Amendment and the Second Amendment, but what about the First Amendment and the Second Amendment? I've been concerned about protests where people show up armed. Uh, this is a, actually a problem as well. So if you, you're exerting your First Amendment right to freedom of expression, but you're packing at the same time, you're now creating a menace. And I, and I just think that creates a very uh, volatile, uh, unsafe situation as well. So uh, there's a bunch of constitutional clashes that we got to yes. sort out. Has that been an argument made that, well, I have a First Amendment right to carry a gun, I'm expressing my right to... No, you have a First Amendment right to express your voice, but if you're coupling it with your Second Amendment right to carry a gun, I mean, it's one thing if you shout a political slogan unarmed, and it's another one if you shout one in an armed, uh, and, and it carries a different import. Right. Uh, then Congress passed gun control legislation, which did not as address assault rifles or high-capacity magazines, or, uh, and still allows people under 21 to buy all of that. Commissioner, did you see any positives coming out of this legislation that was just signed by the president? Well, I think the positive is that we actually got some movement, movement that we never had. So we got some movement. It will make people feel better. It will help with people who have mental illness. It will help with background checks. It does not help with guns that are already on the street. Right. It does not help with people who buy their guns through the black market or in an illegal fashion. It only helps with people who buy guns the legitimate way. It's supposed to help with red flag laws. Do you, does your department do a lot of that stuff now where you see somebody who has a gun and says, and you go to court or get some kind of warrant or do whatever has to be done uh, to take a gun away from somebody before they do something? We, we make attempts at that. It's not always very successful. Really? Uh, okay. Uh, what's your take on the new gun control bill? I think it's a good first step. We need a whole lot more uh, to make it effective and keep people safe. I will point out, while I do agree that it's important to invest in, in mental health, uh, most of the shootings we see are not people who are suffering from mental health problems. I mean, so it, it really is a, much of the bill is an answer to a problem that isn't being um, asked, you know, uh, because, uh, you know, most people who go in and shoot the, 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 the in the Uvalde shooting and in the Buffalo shooting, there's no sign that these people were mentally ill. I was going to say they, that. they were, uh, they were in many, I mean, they were, they were nuts, of course, but, but not from a mental health standpoint. And not by any prior indications that right. anybody would have gone in and done anything. They would have not been picked up by just looking at prior records. I mean, the, the thing is, is that uh, this, this legislation, I, I applaud the, leg the Congress and applaud the president. They're doing the best they can do given the political situation that they have, uh, but a whole lot more is gonna be needed in order to restore uh, safety. Like what? What else should have been in there? Well, I mean, let's just start with universal background checks. Let's move on there to a strong uh, red flag law. Let's, I think a waiting period of three days would make a lot of sense. When you look at sh guns, you got a number of problems that you need a unique solution for. The suicide problem. Here's something that people don't want to talk about. White men over 50 committing suicide with guns. That's a social problem. We don't talk about it for other social reasons, but a waiting period might help. 
there's the street, the low level stuff. We need more, we need to just, we need trigger locks, we need uh, solutions uh, for that. Then there's the mass shooting problem, then there's the domestic violence problem, and then there's the, the, the uh, issue of, uh, of the ghost gun, where these guns aren't even, they don't even have serial numbers on them. You can make them, uh, you can order them over line. So there, we need something to address all these different problems, and I think that's where we really gotta go. But the problem is not, knowing what to do. The problem is the political will to do it, and that's what we have to muster. Do you have any? I, I agree, and, and to piggyback off of what the AG said, the ghost guns is the most pressing and challenging problem that we have. Guns that cannot be traced, that are unserialized. Then to further exacerbate that, uh, we were at, the eight, at an ATF summit uh, just a month or so ago where they did a demonstration of how to make the devices that you can put in a gun was made with a digital printer in about 40 minutes that converts it to a fully automatic weapon, both in a handgun and in an assault rifle. And then I'm just a believer, I'm a, I'm a former military person, assault, assault rifles are, right, are, are weapons of war. They, right. they should not be on the streets of America Absolutely. in the hands of people who are using them to kill and c commit carnage and kill people in our communities. They're not, they're not being used for weapons of war, they're being used against our communities. How did, so we, there was a ban once upon a time, it went away. Worked pretty well. That's what the statistics show. What, what's holding us up from banning assault rifles? There's, there is a political will to keep them and to not have any decisions made against weapons. We make decisions against everything else, right. not against firearms. Uh, speaking of political will, last time you visited Washington Post Live last summer, we talked about a policy being imposed by your state's attorney to not prosecute certain misdemeanors uh, in order to free up officers for more serious crimes. Crime had dropped in 2020, and you were supportive of the policy, but crime did not drop in Baltimore in 2021. And I saw you speak at a recent Chiefs conference where you were less enthusiastic about this approach. It's an approach many prosecu progressive prosecutors are trying. What's your thinking now on ignoring low-level crimes like marijuana possession and trespassing? Well, I am, not, I am not opposed to the policy decision of a prosecutor not prosecuting minor crimes or misdemeanor crimes. The issue I had and that I think I spoke about at the conference was the collaboration and coordination of a state's attorney or district attorney creating that policy in a silo without me at the table mm. because they can plan for months to create a policy, spring it on me, and now I have to train 3,000 people and create a new policy and then train all those people on what to do now that we used to do yesterday. And so my issue is not necessarily being against the policy because what we found, the people committing low-level crimes, perhaps like possession of marijuana or trespassing or urinating in public or right. prostitution. Those people, those offenders for those crimes are not graduating to be the shooters. And they're not the victims of shooting. So there's not a correlation between those crimes and violent crimes. So the data doesn't support that we should be prosecuting that because they turn into more serious crimes. So I'm okay with that. But we need to work together so that if, a, if there's a policy change, I have the time to train a department that we move in a different direction on how we do that. 
that's more important than the, the policy change itself. And are your officers on board with that? A lot of officers resist that kind of They resist you know, it. They're not on board. They resist it because they go through an academy and a training and being taught that our job is to enforce the law. Here are the laws. We enforce the laws. And so for years, many officers have been enforcing these laws. And community members have been giving them praise for doing so. And now, all of a sudden, there's a policy change, not a change in the law, but rather a policy change with the state's attorney who will not prosecute 10 or 12 minor crimes to include drugs, all drugs of simple possession. However, my concern is not the issue that it's a violent crime. I am more concerned about the violent offender. Right. While simple possession of marijuana or simple possession of heroin might not be a violent offense, it does not always mean the person arrested is not a violent offender. And we want to be able to distinguish the two. And when we are in the presence of the violent offender, we should have the autonomy and authority to make an arrest to remove the violent offender, especially if it prevents a future crime by that person. Or prevents, that person Go ahead. From being, or prevents that person from being the victim right. of a violent crime. Right. Mr. Attorney General, you're not a local prosecutor, but you've frequently endorsed these kind of initiatives from progressive prosecutors. Do you think that not enforcing low-level crimes can ultimately make us safer? Well, let me tell you, I am a prosecutor. Right. It's just that we end up with the, the heavy stuff, like the, like the murders. But I, I have endorsed uh, not prosecuting those uh, crimes, but, um, but I don't want to be doctrinaire about it, right? Because sometimes you have neighbors who are just saying, look, I don't know what you're going to do with those folks on the corner, but you've got to do something. Because it, it really does erode neighborhood um, you know, confidence. It, it seems like it's a place, it's a good place to commit a crime because nobody seems to be doing nothing about all this small stuff. But so, so what's the answer? I would argue we do have to have an answer, but it doesn't necessarily be using law enforcement resources to do it. You can have street intervention folks who, and, and I mean, there used to be a wonderful group in Minnesota called Breaking Free. It was a group to help women who were prostituted uh, and, and exploited to get into another kind of lifestyle and they were effective. You have, uh, you know, a lot of times these street corner hustler types are, um, you know, they, they, they're looking for opportunity. So there's a lot. We, I'm not saying, and I don't think the progressive prosecutors are saying, ignore the problem, just let it happen. It's really more of a question is how do you deal with the problem, which absolutely has to be dealt with, because not only does it erode neighborhood um, livability, it also, you also have people there who generally are exploited out there on the street. And so uh, other parts of our society have to stop doing something. They have to stop saying, chief, you deal with it. Because that, that's kind of what we do, right? I mean, we, we, teachers and cops, every social problem is on their desk. The rest of us need to say, what, what is the business community going to do? What, is the, what are our unions going to do? What are, what are our neighborhood groups going to do to help deal with these uh, sort of livability problems that are problems uh, that actually help solve them. Uh, you know, uh, how many people who are doing these low-level crimes are also homeless, or also have no health care, also suffering from mental health e illness? We've got to step up, and we can't just dump it on the police and the schools, as we tend to do. 
Well, since you led into that, I'm going to hop ahead to a question I had for Commissioner Harrison about that, which is that law enforcement leaders often talk about the need for the rest of government and social service to address these problems. And, these the, and the private sector. I'm, I don't, All right. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, come on, come on, uh, police. I mean, you did uh, throw business. out the business community Come on, earlier. business association. Let's, right. let's see what you got. Are you seeing any progress on that side? Well, I am. And, you know, we've, we've been asked to be all things to all people. Right. And the burden of putting it all on police is, is, is slowly reversing. And we're having conversations about who should be responding to calls of people in mental crisis, to homelessness, to addictions. And police should have never been involved in that. And what has happened is while involved in those kinds of calls, we've engaged and become involved in uses of force. And then those uses of force um, are negative. And then we injure people, we hurt people, it gets worse. And, but we never should have been put in that position. Uh, so now we're having a conversation about who should be going and the conversation about who should pay for it and where should the money come from? Should, it, should we take it from police? Absolutely not. We should be investing in the appropriate authorities and disciplines to handle those kinds of calls to minimize what, what police should actually be doing, which is working to prevent crime, building relationships, repairing relationships, apprehending people who commit crime and building good cases, but working to reduce that crime and make people not just safe but feel safe. Hey, when I was at that police chief's conference, there was discussion about a new phone number, 988 that people will dial to get mental health service instead of the police? Do you know? That was in one jurisdiction. They created a, a hotline for, for mental illness calls that moves residents and citizens away from the 911 system. Right. And directs those calls to the appropriate authorities to respond to people in crisis. If I may say, you know, how many families are like, look, I don't know what to do with them. I need help. So what do we do? 911. That's right. Well, if we had other ways to get other help, you could solve the problem. And if it gets violent, you could call the police. But so often you just need somebody who knows how to deal with somebody who is, who is in need of, of care. And officers are trained to use force. I mean, there are Minnesota statutes that say you, officers can use force under these circumstances when other people really can't. So that's what they really know how to do. Right. What do you expect them to do if somebody's not complying, well, they're gonna use force. And then we're all gonna be like, well, that officer shouldn't have done that. And maybe they shouldn't, but all the rest of us should have stepped up way before. I mean, how do we have all these tents set up under every highway in every major city? And we just say, well, you know, let the police handle it. I just, I just it really gets my dander up, I'll tell you. I can tell. Yeah. <laughs> all right, Commissioner, we've got a question for you from Twitter, from Dr. Mahesh, who writes, on my way from Baltimore, I already saw a billboard advertising public carry gun policy and how they can help you to carry guns in public. And those billboard people move fast. He didn't say that, I did. Uh, how do you both navigate between the recent SCOTUS ruling and public safety and trust in policing? Well, it, it, I don't know the rationale why that person would put that on a billboard, I, I, can, I can guess. But what, what it comes down to is conflict and conflict resolution. And so there are some who believe that if more people, law-abiding citizens, could carry guns, then they could participate in self-defense and 
But what happens is then we move to an area of conflict resolution where that's the only option. Well, we are already seeing that with the criminal offender who has poor conflict resolution skills and are using firearms to settle many, many conflicts. Here's what we know about Baltimore. Here's what I hear other chiefs say. The majority of our shooting crimes, while those individuals might be tied to a drug organization in some way, large or small, at the point the trigger is pulled, it's usually some conflict, and it's, the conflict is not drugs. It's some disrespect, it's some social media issue, it is the ex-boyfriend, the new boyfriend, it is what somebody had to say, and it's a conflict, or it's a retaliation from a previous conflict, which is still conflict. Right. And people are solving it with guns, and shooting and killing each other, and all more guns will do is cause people to use those guns to solve their conflict. Right. Escalation. Uh, so both of you have spoken about the need for police reform, and uh, the George Floyd bill would have taken significant steps in that direction, but it failed in Congress last year. Uh, Attorney General Ellison, I know you're still a strong supporter of that, but right. how, does, how do those efforts get resurrected now? Well, we just, it's a matter of will. If we don't drop it, it's not dropped. Right. If we keep it up, if we make it an issue, then it's an issue. And so I just I say everybody who cares about stopping the next George Floyd tragedy should keep on talking about how to pass the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. And, and so, look, and, and I just want to assure people passing the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act will not make our society less safe. Now, look, the chief's here and he can comment on this. But in my experience, I run into police officers all the time who thank our office for prosecuting Derek Chauvin. And, 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 and so it's, it's not like all the officers are like in favor of what happened to George Floyd. Most of them think it's appalling, disgusting, absolutely wrong, and makes them all look bad. So uh, passing this bill will, I think, help chiefs um, move people out of policing that don't supposed to be there will, and will enhance the, state, state, the stature of people who do supposed to be doing policing and will make for greater trust between community and police and will lead to greater, more safe communities. Good, solid constitutional policing, I believe, is premised on trust, good relationships, and that is premised on making sure that police misconduct is addressed like any other kind of misconduct. You and I talked about that earlier. Do you want to jump in on that? Yes. Um, it, we, we need the federal intervention. Now, I, I have um, I've been blessed, and I use that word, to, to lead two police departments. Some would say challenged. Some would say I'm crazy to lead two police departments under a federal consent decree. Maybe the only person to ever do two. Previously, the chief of New Orleans. And uh, at that time, the DOJ called New Orleans the most troubled department in America. And then I find myself in Baltimore. Uh, so. <laughs> Where were they on the rankings? <laughs> up there. You're a specialist. Up there. Yeah. Up there. It, this act, we need this because without it, it leaves police chiefs to go in and to create systems of accountability and culture change in those agencies. It leaves that to us to do on our own, with or without the political will. Or there, in my case, there's federal intervention by way of federal consent decrees after a extremely negative finding against the department that led to a consent decree. So I have the federal intervention. So I can go in and create systems of accountability. One example, the, the EPIC, 
uh, this pen I wear, it's called Ethical Policing is Courageous. A peer intervention teaches officers how to intervene on each other and de-escalate each other. Well, we de-escalate citizen behavior very well. Now we're teaching how to de-escalate each other. That's just one example, but implementing systems of accountability and creating culture change in the agency. Without the George Floyd Act, without a consent decree, you're leaving it to chiefs to do it. Every chief is not strong enough or have, will have the support against unions, which are status quo. They want the status quo to go in and create the, the new culture of building relationships and constitutional policing, which, by the way, can be done with good crime fighting to reduce crime. That's they right. can be done together. That's right. There is a myth that they cannot that is absolutely false. Well, I think Newark did them together, didn't they? Yes. I mean, uh, I think, you know, when you deal with, you know, some of the misconduct issues, misconduct is another expression of, 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 of breaking the rules, right? And then you might break the rules by not turning in everything you found in the search to the locker, to the evidence locker, or you might punch somebody because you're mad. Both are bad behavior. And the chief has to be able to discipline that. And then the other thing about the George Floyd Justice Policing Act that I think people should know about is that it creates a national registry so that if I am too bad and too messed up to be on Police Department X, <laughs> I can't go to Police Department Y and just start all over. Remember, right. the guy who shot and killed 12-year-old Tamir Rice was found to be by the, by the independent city of Independence Police Department in Ohio to be unfit for duty. And that same guy goes to Cleveland and shoots Tamir Rice. So we've got to create a database, and, and, and it's to protect citizens, but it's also to protect the overwhelming number of officers who are there to help people, who are there to assist the public, who are there to protect people. It's, uh, it's very important, and I hope we can develop the will for it. We need more arguments for more different sectors. I mean, because certainly the people who've historically thirsted for civil rights want to support the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. But other folks who really have, civil rights hasn't been a problem for them, they've always had them. Maybe they don't feel it's that necessary. But here's my question for them. Minneapolis just paid out $70 million in civil rights cases. <clears throat> New York paid out about $175 million. Now, how much did L.A. pay out? How much did Chicago pay out? This is all stuff that could go to business development, schools, dealing with the homeless. It could deal with anything. But we're paying through the nose because of misconduct. Oh, and don't even get started about the cost of civil unrest. Even if people don't break windows, you still got to pay overtime for officers who are going to be managing that situation. So it's police brutality is expensive. It's bad for business. And I'm telling you, we need a national consensus that it can be stopped. Let's start, let's back up all chiefs like Chief Harrington, my former Chief Arredondo, and, and solve this problem. We're out of time. Thank you so much, Attorney General Ellison. I, I have more questions for you. <laughs> Attorney General Ellison, Commissioner Harrison. Hey, wonderful. Great job. Thank you so yeah. much for joining me. I'll be back in a minute. Good morning. For those of you just joining us, I'm Tom Jackman, the only tie-wearing reporter covering criminal justice at the Washington Post. <laughs> Not wearing a tie today is Art Acevedo, the former police chief of Austin, Houston, and Miami, and never wearing a tie, but always his trademark blue vest, the Ray McKesson, co-founder and executive director of Campaign Zero, 
and an early supporter of the Black Lives Matter movement. Gentlemen, welcome to the Washington Post. I want to note here that our panelists have previously appeared together on a panel organized by the Council for Criminal Justice. We just want to make clear that we're not in a conspiracy with them. It's just a coincidence that we got the two of you together. Also, a reminder to our viewers, uh, if you have questions for Chief Acevedo or Mr. McKesson, tweet them over to us at, at @postlive. Uh, so, Chief, I'll ask you about the Supreme Court decision last week on the local regulation of guns. The Manhattan DA said the court's ruling severely undermines public safety, not just in New York City, but around the country, by making it more difficult to limit the number of guns on the streets. Do you think this complicates the job for police trying to curb gun violence? Oh, absolutely. I mean, look, it's, uh, we live in a country where instead of uh, trying to keep, do a better job keeping firearms in the hands of uh, law-abiding Americans with sound mind, um, it seems like uh, we're turning the country into it's a free-for-all uh, for weapons. Uh, not to mention the fact that now permitless carry, despite policing saying no, despite the cops, the chiefs saying no, labor saying no, uh, we're allowing people just doesn't matter who they are. doesn't matter about their character. Just go get a gun and walk around. So I think that it's going to make a bad situation worse, and sadly, uh, people are going to die as a result of it. DeRay, what's your thoughts on that? Uh, I'm also interested in hearing uh, your thoughts on the new gun legislation that passed. But uh, what's the net effect of all of that? I'd say, you know, in organizing, we always worry about gun control because... Right, uh, we always worry about gun control because we are nervous... Because in reality, the only people criminalized are black and brown people. So like you, when gun control becomes about possession, it is always black and brown people who bear the brunt of it. So when we want gun control, it's like we should do something with manufacturers and those sort of people. But even in the legislation that just passed, there are a couple of things that sort of went under the radar. It, it, increased, um, it increased some of the mandatory minimums, so that's not good. Like that will, the brunt of that will be black and brown people. The other thing is that it made it easier for death eligible offenses around gun possession. And again, possession, when we look at the data, it is almost always black and brown people. And it's those sort of things that we really struggle with, especially when it's not black and brown people going into schools and shooting people up. It's not black and brown people the mass shooters at these events, right? So how do we do gun control that actually targets that problem and doesn't just push it down to criminalize black and brown people? And I totally get that, like, more guns in communities doesn't make people safer. Totally get that. But when we think about what the solution is, it cannot be to lock up all the black and brown people, not only because we think that's racist, but also because when we look at the data, that also doesn't stop crime either. Great point. Uh, your group, Campaign Zero, calls for ending police violence. And uh, last month, President Biden issued an executive order which calls for de-escalation and body cameras and better investigations into use of force. But the president doesn't have authority over local police. So, you know, where are we on this issue? I mean, how much progress has been made in the eight years since Ferguson? So the police still kill on average three people a day. A third of all the people killed in the United States by a stranger are killed by a police officer killed by somebody they don't know is actually killed by a police officer, which is pretty wild. And those have stayed the same. There are 18,000 police departments, as you know, and the, the president does not manage a local police. That is true. But the biggest police department in the country is Border Patrol, 20,000 officers, and the president does manage those people. So when we think about the importance of the EO, this EO was good around some of the use of force provisions. They were good things that we hope will be models. We fought with the White House around the way they wrote some of it, which we didn't love, but like the, the heart of it is good, and that is a good thing. But I'm mindful that 
that we have a long way to go. When we think about accountability, that is really like the nexus here. So most people know Derek Chauvin. Derek Chauvin gets charged and convicted. What a lot of people don't know is that the police kill 1,100 people a year. The highest number of convictions ever, for as long as we have data, is 11 in a given year. That is 1%. So Chauvin is the extreme outlier. Like, if you're the police, you know that there's a 99% chance you won't be convicted of any crime. Forget murder. Any crime. And it's still really hard to terminate people. And you think about the federal government, last thing I'll say is remember when the, uh, the Border Patrol agents were whipping the Haitian uh, immigrants trying to come to the country or be in the country? Who got penalized in that? It was the horses. You're like, how are the horses the ones in trouble? The people don't even get in trouble. You're like, the horses didn't do anything wrong. The people did something wrong. And I think that that like sums up so much of what's wrong. It's like, imagine if you had a job where it was impossible to be held accountable. Insert policing. I, I would note, I'm sure Art is chomping at the bit to note this, but I'll do it instead, that there are a lot of uh, police shootings that are you know, they shoot the bad guy. So when you say 1% of all killings, some of those police shootings are justified. I think even you would agree. I mean, uh, none. I mean, none is, that's like me saying, that's when the police are like, all right, all police officers bad. It's like, right. well, they're good people. All right. But so, well, look, in a world of, in a world of uh, uh, video cameras, in-car cameras, uh, cell phone cameras, rings, fortunately for us, we're going to have a lot of evidence now. And I think the American people know a justified, legally and morally shooting, whether it's the police or a civilian, when they see one. And I'm grateful for that, because when you get shot at, we get to shoot back. Uh, if someone's shooting Tom at a 7-Eleven, at a we get to protect Tom. I mean, that's just common sense. And so uh, whether it's 1,100 or two, the question is, was it justified? And right. that's, we can't look at the, uh, you know, uh, like in Austin when I was there many years ago where I got beat up because we were on our 12th officer-involved shooting. And, I, and my response was, each shooting has to be judged based on the evidence and the law because we can't have the mindset, hey, we've already had 10 and our, 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 the max for the year is 11, so we're going to let you be stabbed to death or shot to death. So it is, uh, it's a proposition that accountability is a two-way street and can't just be a one-way street. The only, I'll just add, just so Yes. Is that like, if the police told the truth all the time, and I don't even say that like inflammatorily, then we'd be fine, right? But when George Floyd got killed, what the police said at the beginning was not the truth, right? It was excited delirium. It was, you know, he had a heart attack. That was what the police said until there was a video. Chief Harrison, who, you know, I'm from Baltimore, I live in Baltimore, don't dislike the chief, but the police department in Baltimore just killed somebody, and what his police department said on the news immediately was that the officer got hit by the car. The, the officer did not get hit by a car. When you look at the body camera footage, which the police department did not release that day, the officer says on camera, I did not get hit. So we're, so we're like, why did y'all go on the news and say that the boy hit, the, like that didn't happen, right? So when people talk about the justified thing, I'm always asking people, when is it okay for the police to kill your child? What's the, what's the mistake? What's the circumstance? And when I ask parents that, they are often, they can think of 10,000 ways that you de-escalate the situation. So I don't, Art, and we've been, you know, I've talked to Art a lot, <laughs> is that I don't, I, I, I'm not convinced that 
we should call it common sense to just always shoot back. I want to believe that if they are police, that they are equipped with something else to like be, to do things in situations. I used to teach sixth grade math. Sixth graders are tough and annoying sometimes and they would have temper tantrums. And my response every time a kid acted out wasn't throw you in the closet, kick you down the stairs, slap you, right? Like part of my role as an adult, as a teacher was to have a set of tools to deal with misbehavior because that was a part of the job. So when I think about the idea that there will be conflict in community, that is real. There will be harm in community. And at its best, there have to be a set of people who murder is not the only tool in the toolkit. I just won't accept that, certainly not as common sense. Yeah, but you'll look, for the 1100, I'm gonna push back a little bit too. I'm here. Uh, first of all, to say that I'm uh, soft on bad policing was is probably would be um, uh, a, a, a not a true statement, which you didn't make, but some people think I am. The truth of the matter is, we because last about you got you got to put perspective and you and you have to uh, provide the context, put it in context. He just wants the police to tell the I truth. I mean, listen, there's millions there, for for everyone that goes wrong. There are a lot that go right, and part of the problem is that and and one is one too many. But part of the problem is if we keep just saying that let's let's reinvent policing, uh, let's fix policing. We have a a system in this country of mental health, of education. And the focus is on police. We, we had to shoot a guy, a, a, a sergeant shot, shot a suspect and an individual, God rest his soul, in, in, in Houston. And I had to face that mother. And you know why she was angry? This guy tried to shoot the officer, came out with the gun. She wasn't angry that we had to shoot him. She understood that. Her anger was that this country had that young man that was addicted and had mental health. The government knew that. And he went in one door, out the other, and she wanted to know, why did you all let my son back out on the streets? And so I think that if we're going to keep communities safe, it's not just from bad policing, we, got a we need to keep communities safe. We need to talk about a lot of other issues. It's not just policing, it's public health, it's public safety, it's education, it's economic development, it's a, it's a lot of things. And, and if you just focus on one, We'll be having these conversations, he and I. You'll never be out of a job. I'm already out of a job, so I'm looking if you need a... If you we'll need get a to that. Place to this is, I'm yeah. really only going to say one thing. So I agree with that, right? Like, in, in spirit, that makes sense to me, and it doesn't absolve us of accountability and responsibility. No, so when I think about... I was a teacher. Kids came to school with all types of stuff. Kids were... Some kids didn't eat before they came to school. Some kids lived in homeless shelters. All of the things. But, and still, teachers had a responsibility to teach. And I wasn't... I used to lead human capital in the school system in Baltimore. 10,000 employees building out organization and when teachers literally just did not teach it's like that's not okay like that part of the bar part of the deal is that you show up into your job and we focus on the other things and i have to believe that the police if they are to exist at all like have to have a set of tools in that toolbox that don't don't make excuses about the external factors in community and also understand that like murder cannot be the best, the only, and that people, you will see people on their worst days. That's a part of the job. That is what it is, right? And that we have to have a set of tools that are different than murder. All right, hold on, Art. I got a question for you from Twitter, which is timely Twitter, okay. to this. Yes, MZ asks, where is the role of police unions in systems of accountability for police forces? Here's a chief that I'm sure has lots of things uh, let, to say let, about police let unions. Let me tell you something. Clearly I, they have been opposed. Yeah. You are, you're interrupting the tweet. Come on. Hey, look, Clearly they have look, been opposed I, I, to greater I, accountability and particularly there, opposed to a system that keep bad cops from getting hired part, up. Part of the problem is that uh, police unions, uh, they, they're, they're, we have to have you. I, I support labor. 
but God bless the left, right? God bless progressives. Uh, they can't stand that cops are not being held accountable. And guess who gave them all those protections and all those rights? It wasn't the GOP police unions. It was Democrats. They gave them all these rules, gave away management rights, okay? And it's gotten to the point where those rights were supposed to be about protecting police officers. They're doing the right thing from a political situation. Think Miami. Um, as opposed to protecting bad cops, right? And now it's gotten to the point where it's making it very difficult in a lot of places to hold bad cops accountable. Well, what can and be done about unions, that? And these unions will, some of them will, they will, they will protect and they will defend the indefensible. Well, that's their job. The union no, is that's representing not their job. Not, that's, I, don't, I, I disagree. Because if I'm a union member and I'm paying dues, the court of public opinion matters to everything we do. It matters to the way we're going to be treated by a jury, a grand jury, a criminal jury. It matters to our pay. It matters to our benefit. And when you're pissing off the public because they know bad policing when they see it, you're not helping 98. Well, I'm going to lower that because uh, I, I, I used to think about, you know, what percentage of the police forces are a problem. And we've talked about this before. And when you look about how rabid members of law enforcement are anti vaccine, that scares me. Because the numbers are a lot higher than one or 2%. When you look at some workforces where it's 30, 40, 50% and that are following the politics instead of following the science, uh, I think we've got a lot of challenges. And so we gotta be real careful to try to get, we need to get some management rights back uh, in this country. Police unions got rules put in place to protect them as employees, and they're simply standing up for those rights. Why can't there be a way to sort of roll that back without accusing the unions of being evil? Well, like, like I said, they're not all the same. Some are, uh, to pay close attention to, uh, look up the Nicholas Chavez Jr. officer-involved shooting where our officers shot a young man that was in crisis. 22 times. The union to this day thinks that's okay. And I'm sorry, that is not okay. I challenge everybody listening. Go look at that shooting and you tell me that that's a justified shooting morally. And um, I think that the majority of American people, including most police officers, thankfully, would have a problem with that. Nicholas Chavez Jr. in Houston, you can look it up. DeRay, what's the link between community trust and police and crime. What, what, if people don't trust the police, what's the impact on crime, on safety? People don't trust the police, so there's that. Uh, it's an if, if they don't. It, it, yeah, you know, uh, let me start with the police unions really quick. Is that so? We have the only database of police union contracts in the country. It's at Nix to Six. Uh, so we have about 4,000 contracts where you can go and see your local contract. You can, we actually do a clause by clause analysis so that you can see the clauses that are good and bad. And it is really interesting. I will only push and say that the history of why the clauses exist, they sort of emerge in the 1980s. And there are 22 states that have state level protections for the police that protect them in ways similar to the contracts. Is that the police chiefs were firing the women and the people of color and the police organized through labor to stop that. That is like where these came from. They have morphed into something that is a nightmare and is not about protecting women or people of color to be something else. We just did the first repeal of any of them in Maryland. Uh, Maryland was the first one, 1975. We just repealed it last session, which is great, but there's still 22 other states that have one 
today, which is not good. And you think about places like Detroit, in Detroit the contract literally says, if an officer is convicted of misdemeanor domestic abuse, the department has to employ them for nine months while they fight the conviction and can as a paid employee and can employ them for another three months after the nine months ends as an unpaid employee with the express purpose of fighting the conviction. You're like, that is, you can love the police and think that doesn't make any sense, right? And like, there are a lot of those things that we want people to see, but in terms of community trust and safety, you know, I don't think people, I, I, I know a lot of communities where people don't trust the police, people also don't know an alternative other than the police. So they're sort of just like stuck in this space, right? And I do think that you have a challenge when people don't want to call 911, people are nervous, like all those things, the studies even show that. But again, what I worry about with the conversation about trust is that it assumes that like both parties did something. And it's like, you know, I'm in cities all the time and they're like, we're gonna do a round table with kids about the police. It's like, you are, the kids don't want to get beat up or harassed. Like you don't need to have 15 round tables. Like it is clear what people want, right? And I think it's hard because the police always do it like we got to build trust. It's like building trust would be great if you weren't killing people, weren't shooting people, weren't arresting people willy nilly, like all those things uh, that are happening more frequently than not. And people often called us like dramatic and da -da -da. people saw George Floyd and we were like, yeah, that happens more than you think. And people were like, oh, you guys aren't being dramatic. And it's like, yeah. And, you know, even when we think about I'm always interested when the police are like, I don't know, nervous about stuff. Cause it's like the number one killer of the police is COVID today. And that's cause they are anti-vaxxers. And then the second is suicide. It's not the community is not hurt. Like we're not attacking the police. That literally is just not happening. But, the, but, but, the, but it's also factual that officer, uh, officers being shot and killed. That is, that has gone up. Um, but again, I but, but again, uh, it's not whether deaths are up, deaths are down. It's about whether what we have done is justified morally and legally. And so uh, I, I, don't, I don't care about numbers. I care about results in terms of holding people accountable. Uh, and trust uh, and engagement does matter. I believe that part of the problem in this country is not just the police. We all stay in our own corners. We, you know, you, uh, what did Martin Luther King say? You want to find the most... The most um, Segregated place in the United States go on any Sunday to a, a place of worship. I believe that the more we come out of our corners and the more that we meet each other, familiarity breeds trust. And, and, and I still remember the cop that used to come down when I was a kid in Almani. English is my second language. I apologize uh, because public, public educators actually spoke, uh, taught me English, so I love my public educators. But this officer would come on his own, get out of the car, let us play in it. That is relational policing. That is building trust. That is building trust with me and that child. And so I think we do need to engage. And then lastly, I will just say about cops in schools. We should never call a cop into a classroom because a kid is acting up. That's not what the police should be called for. When somebody's getting actively stabbed or shot, call the police. But guess what? Too, too many places in this country, the police have taken over for administrators and school teachers, and they should never, ever take the role and assume that role. Because Great. I really believe that if you look at how many, uh, uh, as we've introduced more and more cops into the school environment, there's a correlation between the more cops and the dropout rate. I believe that because we've criminalized adolescent behavior and we've criminalized the behavior that was normal when I was a kid is now getting you a criminal summons instead of to the principal or to detention or whatever. Now it's a cop and now you become a criminal. And I think that's uh, unacceptable. So you're opposed to school resource officers? 
They should be there only for safety, and that is it. And what does that and mean? We and I'm certainly against teachers being armed and, and putting more guns in schools. That's not the purpose of school. Well, you're going to see if that happens, the more guns in school, there's going to be the more accidental shootings, uh, you know, kids getting their hands on the guns. Uh, school is supposed to be about learning, not about having a bunch of people running around with guns. That can't be an, a popular opinion <clears throat> among your colleagues who mainly favor having more officers in schools. What's their role? What's their role? What was they're the in, role in Uvalde? Well, was the role uh, let me tell you, in Uvalde, the it was an absolute abysmal failure. It's an embarrassment what happened in Uvalde, and we cannot, we, we, uh, in terms of police response, and it was, uh, it's, it's embarrassing to what happened to those kids with those cops sitting outside. Chief DeRay, we're out of time. Thank you so much for joining us here today in Washington for this conversation. Thank you. Thank you. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. And we're back. Uh, it's great to be with you all, and it's great to be with my panelists here today. Thank you. Great to be with you as well. Absolutely. As Adam said, we must build common ground. During the pandemic, rates of violent crime spiked, but the need to make the justice system more fair and more equitable remains as pressing as ever. How can we pursue safety and justice at the same time? How can we bring diverse groups together, even when they disagree? How can we move from hurting to healing? To answer these questions, we've brought you three experts, Linda Harley Harper, Chico Tillman, and Walter Katz. My name is Thomas Apt. I'm a senior fellow with the Council on Criminal Justice, and I'll be your moderator. Linda, Chico, and I work together on the Violent Crime Working Group at the Council, which was dedicated to providing concrete and timely solutions for saving lives. Walter served on the Council's Task Force for Policing, which identified the policies most likely to reduce violent encounters between officers and the public, and also making policing more fair and effective. Uh, finally, I'd like to thank Arnold Ventures and our other partners for their strong support. So let's get started. Linda, in our group's final report, we identified 10 steps that every city should take to reduce gun violence. Steps one, two, and three were all about focusing on violence directly and engaging the highest risk people and the highest risk places. You're the director for gun violence prevention for the city of Washington, DC. Can you tell us about the importance of these steps and what you're doing in the city? Sure, absolutely. So what we know is that even though we do have a gun violence problem in the district, we know that we need, it's not everyone. We know that there's a small number of people bringing gun violence to our community, and we wanted to make sure that we were focused on those individuals. And so we took a data-driven approach. Uh, there was a consulting contract with the National Institute of Criminal Justice Reform that did a problem analysis that took two years. And what they did was go through every single homicide case for the last two years, talk to the detectives on the case, talk the, to the investigators on the case, and work through, looked at ju justice background, looked at motives for the cases, and, and in the end of this, we have um, 200 persons that we know we need to really focus on, and the mayor has put historical investments, uh, a lot of it thanks to the ARPA dollars and the federal dollars that have come into the city, and have invested in um, those persons and given us 
us the dollars to allow us to uh, focus on the whole person and to look at employment opportunities, mental health services, to do a public health approach to addressing those that we know need it the most. Thank you so much, so important. Uh, Chico, this is related. You run a community violence intervention program called Ready Chicago. Yes, sir. Which is a leading effort in that city to positively intervene with those at the highest yes. risk for gun violence. Tell us about what community uh, violence intervention is. Community violence intervention is a complementary strategy to police uh, consisting of individuals in the community, driven by the community, but individuals in the community that are credible and also professionals. It's data-driven, and we're hyper-focused on creating or engaging through relentless engagement individuals at the highest risk, but also to get them involved into pro-social behaviors. I think a lot of times, CBI has been associated just with street intervention, but also we have credible clinicians. At Ready, what we have, we have three different um, components that really like addresses the individuals that are involved in violent crime. And those components deal with, of course, street intervention, but also community, community um, violence strategies such as CBI, which would be cognitive behavior intervention, and transitional jobs to allow individuals to be mainstreamed back into employment. Let me pick up on that, uh, that word you used at the beginning, complementary. Um, is community violence intervention a replacement for police and prosecutors, sometimes as we hear? And if not, how do we get these different groups, law enforcement, community groups, to work together? No, it's not a replacement for law enforcement. Community violence intervention works with individuals prior to it breaching or reaching the level of a crime being committed, but also it helps individuals deal with the trauma associated with our most vulnerable communities because of disinvestment and lack of strategy used over a large period of time to address some of the social determinants of health. Thank you. Walter, again, in, the, in this area, today we're seeing politicians blaming reforms for increases in crime and we're seeing activists pushing back, sort of stepping back a, a, a little bit. Based on your work at Arnold Ventures and as a member of the policing task force, can we advance these justice reforms while having safety at the same time? Well, yes, we can. It's unfortunate that uh, the debate has turned into this binary of either on one side it's back the blue and the other side is defund the police. That type of either or argument has not actually helped make communities safer. It's actually slowed down progress. If we take a step back and we look at what is effective, is it effective to only have policing, to only use enforcement strategies, uh, which was the focus, for example, in the 1990s and 2000s? No, that came at many social costs without necessarily the benefits. On the other hand, can we rely on simply keeping communities safe with no police presence whatsoever? And that is really not realistic either. It's a question of how do we properly calibrate and the best way to do that is by bringing together policymakers, community leaders, as well as law enforcement to be able to uh, collaborate together to really assess the challenge, assess the problem, and then apply the right interventions in that right place. There are cities which are doing it right now. Uh, Washington, D.C. is doing it. I think Newark, New Jersey is a great example of using that type of collaborative partnership. Thank you. Linda, let's go back to you. 
at the city level, how can leaders emphasize that to fight violent crime, you need cops and communities working together? How can they build bridges and make people uh, and, and emphasize that collaboration is, po is possible, even when sometimes people don't want to do it? Yeah, that's a, it's a great question, and it's one that we're certainly debating here in the district. Um, you know, we have to have law enforcement and non-law enforcement approaches. We have to realize, we have to reimagine um, what the role of the police is, and we have to really take a step back and see what are other creative ways that we can address issues like mental health. When uh, uh, I heard earlier the panel was talking about having um, who should respond to a particular incident, right? And so um, we're piloting an effort here in the district where uh, mental health professionals respond to mental health crises. And they're the ones that are trained for such a situation. It's going to take both of us. We have to have non-law enforcement and law enforcement approaches. And we have to make sure that we are um, in a posture to really um, reimagine the role of police, but also um, to continue to learn from each other. So the violence interrupters um, and the community violence intervention workers here in the district um, are, um, have to understand the role of the police and have a better understanding, but it also goes the other way, that the street outreach workers, um, have to, their work has to be understood by the police too, and they, there has to be a mutual respect for the work. Um, there has to be an understanding that the, uh, neither side can give all the information that they have, but we have to respect what each other's roles are. And I think that um, we're getting close here in the district. We, we have a law enforcement liaison who's actually here with me who um, serves as that bridge right now. But my hope is that eventually we won't need a law enforcement liaison, that we will have a better understanding of each other and be able to work closely um, together. We have a great working relationship with MPD, but it is an arm's length relationship. Um, and my office is um, focused on non-law enforcement approaches in the Office of Gun Violence Prevention. Absolutely. I really think that we just have to have this hard conversation, which is that if you really care about community safety, uh, it cannot be exclusively law enforcement, but it can't be exclusively uh, community-based approaches, and we're going to have to work together. Uh, Chico, you know, our violent crime working group called for investing in these anti-violence community-based approaches in addition to working with law enforcement. Uh, what are the resources that these community-based groups need to be successful, and what do they need beyond resources? That's a great question, um, and I love the way we approached it in our, our working group. If you think about the first three points, we talked about creating a strategy for the entire city so we can leverage all the assets within the city and make the violence prevention or CVI um, component a part of this larger network so that they have access to all of the agencies and opportunities that a city provides. So that when an individual comes into a space, if he needs mental health, we can connect them to a mental health provider. If he needs some something in an educational space, we can connect them to that. If he needs something around substance abuse, we can connect them to that. So they have to be attached to this larger ecosystem, but more importantly, we have to have funding. We can't have unrealistic expectation with meager investment. And that's been the problem in CVI since its inception. We've given organizations a million dollars to solve a billion dollar problem. Mm. And, and that's never gonna happen. We have to make sizable investments 
and value the lives of black and brown people who are dying at an alarming rate. So in addition to those investments, what else do we need? I know it's not just about the money. The money is critical, but what else? Uh, I, that's what I... Also, we got to professionalize the field. We got to create opportunities so that the field can be nurtured and cultivated in a way so that it has the same ability to grow as other industries and sectors throughout the United States or throughout our entire ecosystem. By professionalizing the field, what we allow is the brightest minds to be involved in solving the biggest problem. The greatest example we saw was when we addressed COVID. What did we do? We brought in the best of the best in every sector to address what? An epidemic or a pandemic in our country. If we take that same approach by using individuals in the community that are closest to the problem, that have the most intimate knowledge of the problem, what? We can stop violence and what? We can change the way our society looks, both for people who are closest to it and for people who are indirectly impacted. Absolutely. Uh, Linda, do you have a quick say? Yeah, I was just going to say that the Chico and I were talking about it earlier, the need for training and investment in the violence intervention space, that we need to continuously um, invest in them so that they can grow professionally and be able to move on beyond the community violence intervention work. I think it's so important. I mean, this, some of this work is about heart, but some of it is also about mind. And there has to be this balance of authentic community, uh, uh, community connection, but also professionalism, also bringing in science, research. It has to have all of that. Uh, Walter, let's say we do, you know, let's say we follow those 10 steps that are set out in the Violent Crime Working Group, and we're, we're working to control violent crime. We're bringing together cops, prosecutors, community leaders, service providers. Could that local effort serve as a model for what could work at the national level? And I think those are interrelated. Um, each level of government has, has a role to play. And bringing together both state, local, and federal government to collaborate together, where each uses the best tools, right? The federal government can be a funder, uh, but the mayors are so important. I think mayors have some of the most important role to play in reducing violence. They are not only the most visible political member within a locality, they can also tap into and drive resources in certain directions. And so they set the tone. Mayors can also connect back up to the state level. And I think this is, what is so important is that despite the politicization that has been going on recently, it is so important to put aside partisan interest. And it shouldn't matter whether or not uh, a mayor is, for example, a Democrat and a governor is a Republican. The fact is that you know, tens of thousands of people are dying every single year uh, because of gun violence. Uh, tens of thousands of people are dying each year because of suicide. And so it's, it, it's an approach which re should require a whole government response, not simply just a response by one individual mayor or one individual community service provider or one individual office of violence prevention. Absolutely. I think it's so important that if we're going to bring people together and if we're going to uh, you know, work across sectors and across levels of government, we have to switch this frame. It can't just be about winning a political argument. It has to be about solving a concrete, actual problem. Uh, that's all the time we have today. Thank you so much for this conversation. Let's give them all uh, a And now... Back to Washington Post Live. 
Good morning, I'm Jonathan Capehart, Associate Editor at The Washington Post. We're concluding today's spotlight on protecting public safety by talking with the third ranking official at the Department of Justice. Please welcome the Associate Attorney General of the United States, Benita Gupta. I should have asked you in the back, what's the formal second reference? Do I call you General no, Gupta? Just call me Benita. So stop, stop. Okay. Yeah. All right. <laughs> All right, Benita. <laughs> All right, Benita. Um, before we get to the Supreme Court case that could have a major impact on public safety, we have to talk about um, the high court's repeal of Roe versus Wade. Attorney General Merrick Garland came out quickly with a, um, a, a statement against the decision saying that the court eliminated an established right essential to women's liberty. What can the department do to blunt the impact of the loss of, a, of this constitutional right? Well, let me just start by saying that the decision is absolutely devastating uh, and uh, I have worked on these issues a very long time uh, on um, protecting reproductive freedom and women's access to abortion, among other civil rights issues. And as much as we knew that the leaked opinion was out there, um, nothing quite prepared me as I think nothing quite prepared many of us for the gut punch that happened on Friday when the opinion actually came down. Um, uh, removing a constitutional right that has been so core to women's liberty and, and freedom um, for 50 years. And so the attorney general did come out with a statement. It was much longer than most statements uh, he issues or that the department issues. And he did that very intentionally, uh, not just to express strong uh, disagreement and disappointment, to say the very least, about the Supreme Court's decision, but also to describe all of the areas that are of intense focus for the department. Um, we are uh, going to look at every available tool uh, using all of the tools that we have. And he listed out what some of those issues are and the areas are, you know, including abortion medication, interstate travel and the like. Um, and, uh, but the reality is while all of these areas are very important and we are going to fight every day uh, uh, to, to protect reproductive freedom around the country. Uh, we, our tools are not the same as Congress's and Congress's ability to pass a law, and we continue to call on Congress to enact legislation that will uh, protect uh, the right and access to abortion for people who need it. Um, but we will fight every day to do everything we can using the enforcement tools and other tools that we have um, in this area. Um, I'm glad you brought up the, you mentioned how the press release in reaction to the Dobbs decision was much longer and more detailed than the department or the attorney general usually puts out. Because I noticed that. Because the department's press release after the gun decision was handed down was decidedly shorter than the one for Dobbs. How much more difficult will repeal of New York's 108-year-old gun law make safeguarding public safety, especially in densely populated cities like New York? So just the day before, uh, the department did issue a statement um, expressing deep disappointment with the Bruin decision, the gun decision that you mentioned. Um, and, uh, you know, the view is that it is dangerous for public safety uh, and that the department is going to continue to um, push forward using all of the tools that we have to combat gun violence in our communities. We issued a ghost gun rule. We've been 
um, working with our law enforcement partners to ensure that we can do everything we can to take illegal guns off the street. Uh, but though the, the statement may have been a little bit shorter, um, the concern about the impact of that decision uh, is, um, is no less strenuous than um, in Dobbs. And we are just going to work with our state and local partners around the country to do what we have been doing over the last couple of years to fight the scourge of, of gun violence in our communities. And I'm going to get into that in a moment, but I'm, I'm wondering, will the court's decision hinder efforts at the local level to tackle violent gun-related crime? Um, I think, you know, the answer is yes. You heard it from uh, Chief Harrison in Baltimore, who talked very concretely about the impact of that decision. I'm from Keith Ellison in, in Minnesota about the impact of that decision. Uh, it makes the jobs of police chiefs that much harder. There's no question about it. And so um, we are, all of the work that we do to combat the epidemic of gun violence really does happen in partnership between the feds state and locals, and we have been um, fighting this epidemic for the last couple of years using the tools that we have, but there's no question and we can't deny that that type of decision is gonna make this job and this work that much harder. And of course, coming after the country has been reeling from some acts of mass violence in Buffalo and Uvalde, um, really struggling with these issues uh, about how can we combat what have become almost commonplace acts of horrific uh, violence and um, and so we are very focused on that and uh, but there you know we can't we can't blunt the the impact of that decision and I want to get to since you mentioned Baltimore get to Baltimore in one second but I have to ask you just one more thing broadly about the 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 gun decision Justice Clarence Thomas argues in that majority opinion that there is a constitutional to carry a weapon in public for quote ordinary self-defense isn't that standard in the eye of be eye of the beholder well, we, you know, in the short statement that we issued, we said, uh, the department said that we disagree with the court's um, reading of the Second Amendment as prohibiting New York's very reasonable requirement. Uh, and so we continue to stand by that position. And I think there's a lot of um, concerns right now about you know, what is in the eye of the beholder or not, but this is a decision that's been issued by the Supreme Court, and now we'll see what state legislatures do in response. Um, and I forgot to mention, if you have a question, a burning question for uh, the Associate Attorney General, please uh, tweet them at Post Live, I believe is the, is the Twitter, Twitter handle. Um, so let's talk more about Baltimore, because the city of Baltimore has done extensive work since the death of Freddie Gray in 2015. How did your work as the head of the Civil Rights Division and your work on the consent decree in Baltimore influence your overall approach to working with police? You know, when, um, I, when I entered the Justice Department, which was October of 2014, it was a time when the country was in some parts literally on fire around um, uh, police, racial justice, public safety, violence. Uh, and uh, Darren, uh, you know, there had been the, the Ferguson Police Department, the Justice Department had just opened up in its investigation when I came in. And every week that I was on the job for just under two and a half years as head of the Civil Rights Division during that time, it was as though there was a new video, uh, viral video um, of uh, officer-involved shooting or police-related violence. And when Freddie Gray was killed in police custody, uh, there was massive unrest, violence also in, in Baltimore, and the Justice Department at that time had been engaged in the city through a collaborative reform initiative um, to work on kind of collaborative uh, reform with the Baltimore Police Department. 
and the community had just lost faith in, in that as a response. And so uh, it was Loretta Lynch's first day on the job as attorney general, and she sent uh, myself and Ron Davis, um, who was then head of the uh, Office of Community-Oriented Policing, up to Baltimore. And we met with Freddie Gray's family, with police officers who had had bricks thrown at their head uh, the night before during the unrest. We met with um, leaders, community leaders, residents from all over. And what was so profound about the days that we spent in Baltimore in that early period was that there were entire blocks in the city that um, and, and neighborhoods that were literally refusing to cooperate with the police. Um, they were so you didn't have witnesses reporting, uh, you know, what they had seen. You didn't have victims reporting crimes to the police. There was really a sense that law enforcement in certain parts of the community was the enemy and that it was having a very concrete impact. This was not academic. This was direct impact on the ability of the Baltimore Police Department to have the trust and legitimacy in that community and to be able to solve crimes in the community. Uh, and so we opened a pattern of practice investigation, but I, we did it um, with a little differently maybe than sometimes how the Justice Department had been seen as doing it. The Baltimore FOP, the Fraternal Order of Police, the police union um, in Baltimore, um, I met with uh, a fair bit in those early days, and I invited them over to the, to the Civil Rights Division. They had done a report, actually, the year prior, talking about how city policies and decisions made by local elected officials had created these arrest quotas in the city and had resulted in racially disproportionate arrests. Uh, had eroded the trust uh, between the police department and community residents. And, um, and we're saying, look, we are enforcing these decisions that have been made by politicians, and now we are you know, where we are in the city vis-a-vis -vis being able to solve crime. And I say that because I think it's an important dimension when we talk about violent crime and we talk about needing to fight gun violence and fight violent crime. One of the key things that we've done at this Justice Department is understand just how much police community trust is at the heart of being able to fight violent crime. And we've, we've been in a consent decree now for five years in Baltimore. Um, Commissioner Harrison has been absolutely tremendous uh, as a leader and community residents have really stuck with it, but it takes time. And some would say five years is too long. But there have been really important and significant changes in Baltimore. And I always say, and it was the quote that you saw on the screen, that change doesn't happen overnight. And the stuff takes a lot of work. You can have a bunch of changes of policy, but culture eats policy for lunch uh, without the kind of sustained commitment to work on these issues over the long haul. Can you talk about um, the, the Knowledge Lab? This is something that you, re you recently la launched at DOJ. So, um, I was actually surprised, frankly, that the Justice Department didn't have something like the Knowledge Lab. The Knowledge Lab is a very basic idea. Uh, it is the idea that with all of the Justice Department's consent decrees over time, with all of the research that we fund and that we do, with the work that has been done by, uh, by the International Association of Chiefs of Police and, and the like, we didn't have and haven't had a central clearinghouse 
to really uh, be able to promote best practices in constitutional policing and a one-stop shop that if you're a mayor in a city that's having a particular problem or you're a police chief or you're a civil rights activist and you want to know what is the state-of-the-art use of force policy that I should be pushing for, where do I go? Do I look at all of DOJ's consent decrees one by one? So this, what we did this year is launch this knowledge lab, which creates this one-stop shop for anyone to take a look and, and be able to access the tremendous amount of learning, data-driven, evidence-based learning that we have on policing, and to be able to make those changes um, ourselves. Justice Department, you'll be surprised, maybe some of you, that we only have 15 consent decrees right now that are active around the country. We are a nation of 18,000 police departments. There is no way that this one tool, important though it is, is going to transform policing and build community trust in, all over the country. And so what is it that the Justice Department can do to make sure that people have the tools that they need to push for those changes? I remember after Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson, there was this massive push around the, the country to say body-worn cameras were going to be the silver bullet solution. Um, and it, it wasn't because they aren't important, but there's a lack of maybe enough transparency or understanding of how policing works in communities. And the Knowledge Lab really is to be able to arm people with the types of things that um, can have made proven differences in, in police departments and police community relations around the country. How resistant are police departments around, uh, that the Justice Department goes into consent decrees with, how resistant are they to change or the changes that need to be made in order for them to be better? You know, I, um, I think the country has come a long way. I'm not gonna be Pollyanna about it, but I also think that there's been tremendous law enforcement leadership that has recognized that departments sometimes are one critical incident or violent act away from uh, being kind of hitting rock bottom. And that there's a lot of appetite among law enforcement leaders to do what we can to proactively prevent these types of problems and situations from coming to be in the long haul. There, you know, I, I have found that when we've tended to open these pattern practice investigations more recently, it's often with the support now of the mayor and the police chief. Um, and it may be through some, a little bit of conjoling and convincing, but to be able to see what the long-term benefits are of having this outside tool that kind of can sometimes force political will, force budgets to invest in constitutional policing and the like, force elected officials to pay attention in this way. And so we have found that we are more kind of welcome in by the jurisdictions. But I also think, as I said, we are touching a fraction of police departments if we are only relying on this one tool, which is why you know, we built out the Knowledge Lab. Uh, a few months ago, the Attorney General announced the relaunch of our collaborative reform initiative that um, provides, there's one part of it that provides technical assistance to, we've done it, and I think now to about 500 police departments around the country through our technical assistance center. We um, relaunched our critical response review program, which is our program that is a part of collaborative reform that we are now using in Uvalde. Um, I think you, some of you may have heard that we are conducting a review of the police response that day and in the aftermath, um, not only to provide an independent accounting of what happened, there have been a lot, and every day there are new facts that seem to be emerging about that horrific day, 
um, but also to understand what are the lessons learned and what are best practices that we can push out to the field moving forward. And these are the types of things, if we can expand the spectrum of support and work and technical assistance and research and funding, even outside of this pattern practice tool, which is a very limited tool, we are going to be able to reach a lot more departments this way. And you know, law enforcement leadership has really, uh, has really welcomed all of these kinds of tools um, that are so important to be able to, to move policing forward in this country. Let me pick up on what you were just talking about with Uvalde, because I think when people hear that the Department of Justice is looking into something, that there's an expectation that the Department of Justice is going to hold at the, at the end of the review or whatever the department is doing, that it is going to hold someone accountable. And in Uvalde, we have seen day after day after day, new revelations that are more horrifying than the next about um, all sorts of things that didn't actually happen, all sorts of things that should have happened but didn't. Um, and I think the nation is still sort of reeling from the notion that there were law enforcement there that could have done something but didn't. So with, the, with DOJ looking into what's, what happened at Uvalde, should the public have the expectation that the DOJ is going to hold someone or something, an entity, accountable for what happened? So with this review, I want to be clear, this is not a criminal investigation. Obviously, the department has criminal investigative authority, uh, and we use uh, our, you know, we prosecute officers for violating um, the law when, when that happens. Um, uh, but this is a after action review, which is another tool that the department has. And the goal of this is in part because of these conflicting facts. I mean, I can't, I'm the mother of a 10 and 13 year old. I cannot imagine the kind of additive pain and devastation of parents who are learning different facts every day that's just compounding what they've experienced in Uvalde. And so to be able to provide a definitive accounting, we've got a team on the ground there this week. Um, uh, and and it is going to take us time to do this review. Uh, we're going to be looking at everything, at, at video, at the, we're going to reconstruct the timeline. We're going to you know, understand all of the security measures, the training and the lead up, what happened during the incident, the victim services and family communication and the whole thing. Um, and that is to provide this definitive independent accounting. It is not a criminal investigation. The district attorney, as I understand it, um, from reading media reports, is conducting a, a criminal investigation. Um, but we will take all the facts and we will publish what we find um, transparently to the to the public, uh, and um, and then we'll go from there. Um, you talked earlier about community trust uh, between the community and and the police. And in the conversation between DeRay McKesson and Art Acevedo, you could see that tension uh, on this stage, even though behind, you know, once they got behind there, they're actually very friendly with each other. But when it comes to that relationship between the community and the police, the tension is real. Uh, and the idea that folks in a lot of jurisdictions feel that they can't trust the police. So, and I know you say that it takes time but can you give um, a couple of examples, or maybe j just one, because I want to get you on something else before we run out of time, of how trust has been 
reestablished between police and community? Yeah, I, um, I don't think it is as, I think in certain places when incidents happen, the kind of breakdown of trust can be so monumental that people literally are not speaking to each other and there's kind of mutual demonization. And I think that's bad for public safety. It's bad for our communities. Uh, and, but I also think that it would be a mistake to say that you know, things are rock bottom in, in communities that are majority you know, community of color. And that is not what I experience at the Justice Department. I've been a lifelong civil rights lawyer. Uh, I have seen people in communities, community activists and residents really push the police um, uh, on you know, transparency and accountability and, and all of that. But the thing that I found really interesting about the post-George Floyd moment and kind of the, the period of time that's followed, even in the summer of 2020, when there were massive protests around on the street, the thing that I thought was so interesting is so many people, community residents and civil rights activists, actually had a lot of agreement with law enforcement and police officers and police executives around the fact that for so long we have put so many social problems at the feet of police and expected law enforcement to solve for them. While not appropriately investing community-based responses for mental health and uh, drug use disorders and the like. And you'll talk to law enforcement, they talk about this all the time, uh, and that they've been saddled with these significant social problems, and that this, this desire to kind of come together to figure this out and to recognize that we aren't going to solve the problems of police violence or police community trust just by looking at the police alone, that this has got to be a shared responsibility with healthcare systems, with our elected officials who are setting local policy on uh, school, on, on, on education policy and employment policy and the like, and that this need to really see these issues as, as through a more holistic lens than what we've done for decades, which is really treating everything as a criminal justice problem, to recognize the greater responsibility and the shared responsibility. And I will say, just if I use one example, I know you told me to, to say one. You heard this panel on community violence intervention. Um, that the need to understand that there's a shared responsibility in a way that we can tackle violent crime, actually by investing in local community leaders who have the experience, the credibility, the legitimacy, who know their block, house to house, apartment to apartment, who can actually intervene in people's lives who may be at the greatest risk of violence or have been the greatest exposure to violence and be able to have them be partners with law enforcement um, to, to, to solve violent crime. This is a really important strategy. If we just use the strategies from 30 years ago, we will be no better off than where we are today. And part of what we are doing through the Knowledge Lab, through, um, through the, the Collaborative Reform Initiative, through our pattern practice investigations, is really kind of understanding the, the fundamental role that communities play in protecting and co-creating and defining what public safety looks like. And, and, and that this can't just be all at the feet of police. We will make that mistake all over again. Um, last question, because we've got a little more than two, two minutes left. And this is not meant to be a political question. This is meant to be a, a philosophical question. So the time has run out, and so we're going to call Given, this quits now. Yeah, right. <laughs> Given the Dobbs decision and Justice Thomas uh, saying you know, that due process rights established in Griswold, Lawrence, and Obergefell should be reconsidered, how worried are you that public confidence 
in, in the Supreme Court is eroding. And I ask that question because I'm wondering if the Department of Justice, can the Department of Justice do its job if people lose faith in the judiciary writ large? So I'm actually going to zoom out your question even more broadly. That wasn't zoomed out? Which is, um, I am very worried about people's faith in institutions and in our democracy. Um, I think that you know, we have a democracy that is almost in crisis. We have levels of polarization that is so profound. Um, and that the, the kind of increasing distrust of institutions, I'm an institutionalist. I also believe in incremental reform. I am an idealist, but I'm very practical. And I, I see what's happening in people's faith in institutions to bring about change or to stand for the rule of law, to stand for democratic norms that are now being challenged. Um, and I think that this is the great challenge of our day right now. Uh, and how do people continue to have faith in our country's ideals and that institutions will help anchor these ideals even in the hardest of times? And what I say to that is our country has been through a lot. And I think that it is easy to see the crisis that we may be in today and to just kind of you know, want to climb into a sinkhole and, and call it quits. But I think that despair is the enemy of justice and that there is the things that have gotten this country through slavery, through Jim Crow, through some of the greatest challenges of our day have always been that good people, men, women, especially young people, refuse to accept the status quo and are going to continue to fight every day for the kind of country we want to be. And that is the only thing that will make a difference. We can't sit around and hope that democracy will just protect itself or that it's an inevitable system that is centering our country. Our democracy has always required work. It has never been perfect. Uh, and that the thing that is, as I said, always made a difference is that people of good conscience have refused to sit back, get on the sidelines, hide under a sofa, even though there are some days where I want to do that, um, and have said, we, were, we are going to fight for this beautiful country and for the people and values that we hold dear. And uh, it's why I'm at the Justice Department. It's why I've committed my life to public service. But I hope that people will really hold on to that, because it's real. Vanita Gupta, Associate Attorney General of the United States, thank you very much you. for coming to The Washington Post. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.